Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming back for the second day. Uh, we're uh, going to be running straight from uh, the first panel this morning into the, uh, the final round table at 12 o'clock. And then lunch will be here uh, at 1 o'clock for, for those of you who want to have lunch as soon as possible and then head off. Um, so this morning, uh, we uh, are going to be hearing, first of all, from uh, Jessica Pearson, who is an assistant professor at Macarthur College in St Paul. And uh, Jessica's work focuses on the intersection between colonial and global health, uh, mainly in uh, French Africa. Thanks, Dave. Um, so I did circulate a paper, which I'm not going to read, presumably other read it or you didn't, but I'm just going to talk a little bit about um, my book more generally and how it fits in with the topic of the of the workshop. So I'm going to talk about colonial outsiders and international public health. Um, so um, my, the title of my book provisionally is The Colonial Politics of Global Health, France and the United Nations in Post-War Africa. And the question that I set out to study in the book is why did France, which was a country that had been so plugged into the international public health scene from the very beginning, try so hard to keep the World Health Organization out of its African empire? So when I was starting to look at the work of the different regional offices of the WHO in the late 1940s and early 1950s, when I was sort of at the very beginning of my research, I was confused why the Africa region, which seemed to be one of the regions most desperately in need of international health investment, seemed to have sort of fallen by the wayside, especially when you compare it to other regions like Southeast Asia and the Americas. Um, and what I ended up finding and what I ultimately argue in the book is that um, it was, the real, it was the broader context of evolving international colonial oversight at the United Nations um, at this moment of decolonization that really created a situation in which the French perceived any international involvement in their African empire as a threat to French colonial sovereignty. So they were really afraid that international personnel working for the WHO would report back to the UN on conditions in the colonies, specifically health conditions, and that anti-colonial delegations to the UN would then use that information as fodder for their sort of anti-colonial position at um, the UN. So they were afraid sort of, um, of, of the WHO serving as kind of a de facto visiting mission to the colonies. They were also afraid that international personnel working in the colonies would start dialogues with Africans about self-determination um, and sort of broader debates about empire at the UN. So, when I sat down to think about this theme um, of outsiders to the workshop, I remember I was sitting at a coffee shop and I had this whole list of like, I was brainstorming, like who are the outsiders in this story? And I ended up with a whole sheet and, and then when I was done, I thought, well, you know, who isn't an outsider in this story? <laughs> Um, but I want to talk about sort of three specifically, or I'm going to mention three, and I'm going to talk about two. So the first group of outsiders in the story are French colonial health administrators and doctors. And I wanted to think about this group as outsiders at the WHO. And I was thinking about this yesterday when Dave was presenting um, and thinking about how this is different from Spain. So it sounded like Spain, want, Spain wanted to no longer be an outsider, and they wanted to join in the WHO. And, you know, this is an interesting comparison to French colonial doctors who... Um, instead of being outsiders wanting to be insiders, they're insiders wanting this particular slice of their existence to be outside, right? Um, and so keeping the WHO from becoming too involved in France's African empire was a way to protect the French empire from unwanted international criticism. So this is very much a group of people who want to be outsiders, um, at least in a kind of particular piece. So the second outsider that I thought of was, I, I tried to think about the World Health Organization as an outsider in French Africa. Um, and I'm going to say a little bit more about this in a few minutes, but um, as 
I'm sure many people in this room know, the World Health Organization's Africa office ends up getting set up in Brazzaville, which is the capital of French Equatorial Africa. And what I argue in the book is that even though it's there in one of France's most important African colonies, the WHO Regional Office for Africa never loses its outsider status, even after it gets set up in Brazzaville. So the French mentality behind inviting the WHO to set up shop there was this um, keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer mentality. And as soon as the office is established, French colonial bureaucrats and French doctors try to keep the office from really doing anything at all. And I'll elaborate on that in a little bit. Um, and then the last group of outsiders, and this is a group that I don't um, talk very much about in the book, um, mostly as a function of the way that I did the research. I didn't do any oral history interviews. I mostly use colonial archives. So, you know, I would especially welcome in the um, question and answer period, and if anyone has thoughts about how I could incorporate this into the book more, but the last group of outsiders, and perhaps the ultimate outsiders, are Africans themselves, right? And this is something that I thought a lot about during the 2014-2015 Ebola epidemic, that there is some sort of longer legacy of this tension between the French Colonial Health Administration and the WHO. Um, in many ways, Africans are still outsiders in the World Health Organization. Okay, so I'm, I'm really going to focus on these first two pieces. So the French Empire as an outsider at the WHO, and then the WHO as an outsider in the French Empire. So um, you know, as many of us know, as historians of public health, French doctors and French government officials had always been extremely engaged in the field of international public health. Um, Paris is the site of the first International Sanitary Conference in 1851. It serves as the headquarters for the International Office of Public Hygiene. Um, and at some point in 1946, during the International Health Conference, the French delegation actually proposes Paris as a potential headquarters for the WHO. Um, so, as I said in my introduction, though, there's a sort of particular slice of French existence that the French want to keep separate from the WHO, and that is their African empire. So when I was beginning my archival research, um, this book uh, grew out of my dissertation that I finished in 2013. Um, the sort of first piece of research that I did was really looking at health conditions on the ground in sort of France's two African federations, so French West Africa and French Equatorial Africa. And I just want to read a quote from 1946 from the health director in Guinea that I think really sums up sort of um, the lay of the land of, of public health in Francophone Africa right after the war. <clears throat> so this is from 1946, and this is the um, report from Guinea on the previous year. So the medical director wrote, in 1939, the situation wasn't brilliant. At the beginning of 1946, it was catastrophic. This situation urgently calls for, on the part of public powers, a complete overhaul of the colonial health system based on a freer, more flexible, and more efficient foundation. The native population is wasting away, disappearing. Our doctors are ready, give them arms. So I spent about four months looking over 15 years of reports from each one of France's sub-Saharan African territories, and I see this sort of same theme again and again and again, that there's sort of, um, and the impetus for reform is there, but um, there's either a lack of funds or a lack of willpower on the part of the people that are going to have to carry out these reforms. So despite this extremely dire situation in the field of public health, a situation which I argue actually jeopardized the very legitimacy of the colonial project, if empire is all about, you know, this, for the French, the civilizing mission, this idea that you're providing hospitals and railroads and schools when you actually can't provide those things. Um, and this is a moment where people in the French empire actually get citizenship. It starts to look like, you know, maybe you're not able to deliver on some of the promises that you've made. 
Um, it was very interesting to me that the French seemed so will, unwilling to engage with new international health organizations like the WHO. So the question I wanted to ask is why? So why did the French insist on remaining outsiders in a system that they had worked hard um, to help create over the course of about 100 years? And what kind of threat did they perceive that the WHO actually posed to France's colonial empire? I think, um, Dave, when you were talking about the creation of the WHO yesterday, one of the things that they really claimed was that this was supposed to be an apolitical organization, right? So why why is this something that's perceived to be such a threat? So I traced the answer to this question back to um, another international body, the United Nations. And um, the, the organization I specifically look at um, is called, I think in very classic UN fashion, uh, the United Nations Special Committee on Information Transmitted from Non-Self-Governing Territories. <laughs> So this is the committee that's charged with collecting all of the reports from colonies that didn't fall under the UN trusteeship system. Um, so they collect, um, they collect reports on three different areas. So economic development, education, and social policy. And social policy included health. Um, the committee was expressly forbidden from soliciting information of a political nature. So what ended up happening was that um, discussions about school infrastructure, agricultural policy, malaria eradication, um, infant and maternal health clinics, these all became sort of very thinly veiled debates about the legitimacy of colonial rule. Um, so anti-colonial delegations at the UN, um, delegations from Latin America, South Asia, the Middle East, the Soviet Union, used this information to make claims about the sort of broader structural inequalities that were inherent in the way that colonial empires were governed. So anti-colonial delegations pointed to various shortcomings in colonial public health. So um, low per capita expenditures, high rates of infant mortality, shortages of medical personnel, and insufficient hospital access. And they accuse colonial governments of overemphasizing future plans in their reports and not accurately reporting on the situation that was actually um, on the ground. Um, colonial delegations responded that it was unfair to compare dependent territories to their more developed metropolitan counterparts. They claimed instead that health conditions should be compared to those um, in independent territories that were at a similar stage of social and economic development. So the French would say, you know, it's not fair to compare Dakar and Paris. You should really be comparing Bolivia and Senegal, um, that that would be a more accurate comparison. Um, the Belgians said that um, you know, many of the shortcomings of colonial public health had less to do with their status as colonial territories than with a sort of general lack of financial resources that all countries were experiencing in the wake of the war. Um, and then the British delegation said that the shortage of medical personnel was common in many countries and was not necessarily a bigger problem for colonial territories. Um, the French delegation also claimed that it should be given more credit for the progress it had made in health, so extensive campaigns to fight yellow fever, malaria, and sleeping sickness, um, and that that's what should be emphasized instead of making these unfair comparisons between Africa and um, continental Europe. So while the French Colonial Health Administration desperately wanted funding for projects that they had envisioned during the war, um, as many people in this room know, what the WHO had to offer was primarily technical assistance in the form of experts and not cash. Um, and it was sort of, this was sort of the sticking point for France. So they wanted funds, but they didn't want international personnel to actually come and work on the ground in Africa. Um, and you know, as I said earlier, they were sort of afraid that these people would then be able to report back to the UN about what they were seeing. 
Um, so the special committee uh, was not allowed to do two things that the trusteeship council could do. So the trusteeship council can send to trust territories, um, visiting missions to observe conditions on the ground. And the trusteeship council can also hear petitions from people living in trust territories. And the special committee can't do that for other kinds of colonial territories. So the French are really thinking that these different UN technical agencies are going to become an important conduit uh, between Africans and the UN that didn't um, otherwise exist. Okay, so um, when this question of creating an Africa office comes up at the very end of the 1940s, the French government is vehemently opposed. Um, but how it works in terms of creating regional offices is that only members of that region whose seat of government is in the region are allowed to vote on whether or not they want a regional office. So even though Britain, France, Belgium are all going to be full members of an Africa region if it's created, the only members that are allowed to vote on whether or not they want the office are Liberia and South Africa. So the French use um, sort of all their tools in their diplomatic toolkit to shut this down. Um, they ultimately fail. Both Liberia and South Africa want the Africa office. Um, and so then this is where they come up with this idea that, you know, if we can't stop it from, from coming to Africa, let's put it in Brazzaville so we can at least kind of watch over what the office is doing. Okay, so that's sort of the first group of outsiders. So thinking about French colonial doctors as outsiders at the WHO. Um, and then I want to say a few words about um, thinking about the WHO as an outsider in French Africa. So um, after some really intense debates, not everyone in the French colonial administration agreed with this position that the WHO office should come to Brazzaville. Um, and actually, it's interesting. It was um, doctors on the ground that were uh, more vehemently opposed to having the office there. They said, you know, put it in Kampala, put it somewhere else, like keep it as far away from us as humanly possible. Um, and it's really officials in Paris who are pushing for putting this in Brazzaville so that they can establish some sort of oversight over the office. Um, so they, they end up inviting the office to set up in Brazzaville. Um, this is a time when other regional offices are moving forward with very concrete plans to launch different eradication campaigns, develop infant and maternal health services, advise member states on expanding their sanitation services. Um, the WHO office in Africa isn't doing much of anything. Um, and so if you actually just look at the annual reports, um, of all the regional offices, I always do this activity with my students where I assign them each a different region and I print off the pages from the annual report. And I think in like 1952, there may be two pages from Africa. And you know, if you look at like the Eastern Mediterranean regional office, it's like a 25 page report. And I have them all come up and say like what, what each of their offices did this year. And we talk about, you know, why is nothing happening in Africa? Um, they spend most of the year bickering about various uh, political issues. So, um, whether or not Brazzaville is even suited to host a regional headquarters of a major international organization um, is sort of the main gist of what they're fighting about. And what I argue in the book is that this battle really highlights the question of compatibility between an older imperial vision of the world and a new post-war vision in which many of these tasks that fall under the umbrella of development now fall not to colonial governments, but to new international organizations like the WHO, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, and UNICEF. So I argue that while the French ultimately fail in their efforts to keep the WHO and other UN agencies out of Africa, they do succeed in drastically limiting the capacity of the WHO to enact its, uh, uh, to enact its agenda on the African continent. So political debates about empire at the UN had the unintended consequence of constraining the possibilities for truly global health action in Africa. Um, prior to decolonization. And as I said, this is, of course, one of the regions of the world that's perhaps most in need of some of the services that the WHO aimed to provide. Um, 
So some of the some of the other arguments they're having um, are about the cost of living for international personnel. Um, living costs in Brazzaville are extremely high. Um, accusations about colonial racism and squabbles about whether or not the organization is allowed to directly interface with Africans. So there's there's a whole three year debate about whether or not they can have a public relations officer. Because um, God forbid someone from an international organization actually talk to people um, on the ground. So this becomes this whole thing. Um, so colonial officials had been hopeful in the aftermath of the war. The health was the one area of colonial rule in which the French could demonstrate an uninterrupted record of real commitment to development. But the arrival of an international health organization on French African soil threatened to expose the French empire to an unprecedented level of international criticism. Criticism whose force, once, once unleashed, they feared would be impossible to contain. So although French officials ultimately managed to succeed in quelling international concerns about Brazzaville's shortcomings, tensions between the French administration and the international personnel that came to work there set a really unfortunate precedent for the relationship between the French Empire and the UN more generally. Okay. Um, so even as the WHO established itself in the heart of France's empire in sub-Saharan Africa, in many ways it remained an outsider. Um, and then I'll just finish by, by saying a little bit about um, you know, if, if I could write an email to myself seven years ago, I would have told myself, I think, to do this research in a little bit different way. I think that there's a really interesting question that I, I don't think I can answer. Um, but if I was going to start it over, I maybe would have done this slightly differently. And that's um, how did this actually impact the health of Africans, right? So is there a way to sort of parse out um, you know, did eradication campaigns in Africa have a different actual health income for, or sorry, health outcome for Africans um, as a result of this tension? Um, and that's something that um, if anyone has ideas of how that could be incorporated a bit more into the book, I would be really excited to hear. And I will wrap up. Great, Thanks. thank you. Jaw uh, is a lecturer in medical humanities at Exeter and a member of the Reluctant Internationalists Research Group at Birkbeck and she works primarily on polio eradication in Hungary and globally. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, this is, just to, to, to let you know, this is the beginning of a, of a new research project that um, so might not be as polished or as together <laughs> as some of our um, uh, uh, here today. So the establishment of the World Health Organization is no doubt a crucial and fundamental moment in the history of international and global public health. Yet the universalist ideas governing the foundation of the organization faced um, uh, almost immediate failure when half of Europe and the Soviet Union left in one or two years after the, it, into its existence. Strikingly, this event merits little more than a mention in histories of international public health. But there is a lot to gain by including the socialist bloc in the, in the picture. This unexplored history points to questions whether international health always happens within international structures of international agencies and through philanthropic entities such as the Rockefeller Foundation, what the stakes were in this Cold War divide in the formative years of the WHO, and the extent to which we can talk about a unified response within the socialist bloc to diplomatic and public health challenges. The establishment of the WHO coincided with the emergence of the Cold War and the split uh, of Europe along political lines. The years of the communist takeover in Eastern European country, uh, governments, 47 and 48 mostly, were in the same years in which the constitution of the WHO was ratified and the first World Health Assembly took place. The ways in which the domestic political crises could throw over seemingly straightforward bureaucratic process, uh, procedures had very real consequences for uh, countries' participation in the international organization. 
The Hungarian story is a case in point. Mm. In order to become a member of the WHO, and you know, we've, we've heard um, about the, the membership um, issues from Dave yesterday, member states needed to ratify the organization's constitution through their respective parliamentary procedures. So this is when they are already allowed to invited to, to join. The Hungarian um, government did so on February 19, uh, 1947. However, it took well over a year for the Hungarian state to become a member, and Hungary could only attend the First World Health Assembly in 48 as an observer. Um, there was a, this was the result of a minor but important bureaucratic mishap. Hungary, having signed all necessary documents and having ratified the constitution in its parliamentary procedure, failed to hand in the official notice of the ratification to the right organization, the United Nations Secretary General, and therefore its membership could not be officially acknowledged. So they sent it to the forming WHO, but not to the UN. The reason for this bureaucratic failure is unclear. Engaging with an international health organization created administrative problems. The procedure coincided with the time when the Hungarian Communist Party took over the control of ministries and political life in general. It is quite possible that there was simply no one to sign and send the papers. There was, you know, there was so many changes. Hungary's ratification and official um, membership was not filed until June 1948. Given the diplomatic nature of the procedure, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was in charge of sending confirmation to the United Nations well, it was the Ministry of Health that was in contact with the forming WHO. The relationship between the two ministries was often strained and disagreements, differences in procedure and priorities could have contributed to the delay in officially joining the WHO. The problematic relationship of health and diplomacy and the overlapping and sometimes conflicting agendas of their governance was not, quite, uh, not unique to Hungary, nor was it unique to the 20th century. The responsibility for and leadership in international public health has been contested between health professionals and diplomats since the 1851 International Sanitary Conferences. The coincidental formation of the WHO and new communist regimes made tensions between experts and diplomats more visible and raised the stakes in creating international public health. The Hungarian difficulties also demonstrated the very real consequences of early debates on membership of the WHO. Universal membership, the WHO being open to all states to join, was countered by the Economic and Social Council of the UN. So the UN took over uh, to, to have a say in this, um, and the WHO can um, decide on its own, basically. While stating that the significance of universal membership, and I quote, in the struggle against disease and particu particularly epidemic disease is recognized, but the competent authority of the UN should regulate admission to the membership. The question of universal membership was Far, uh, by far a settled debate, um, as we saw in the case of Spain. Um, for instance, at the 14th World Health Assembly held in 1961 in Delhi, the Soviet Union heavily backed a draft resolution that would open the possibility of membership to all countries um, in the world, no doubt including East Germany, which not being an internationally recognized sovereign state did not become a member of the WHO until 1973. So this is the the question, uh, the answer to Thomas' question about what happened to Germany, well, half of Germany, this is what happened to half of Germany. It was not long um, after Eastern European states successfully joined that the Soviet Union decided to leave the WHO. <laughs> the Russians were not very eloquent in their reasoning. They cited the mammoth bureaucracy, high member fees, and the political influence of the United States in the WHO. High member fees and the political influence, uh, oh, sorry, um, the exit of the Soviet Union, followed by the whole socialist bloc, challenged the proclaimed universality of the newly formed WHO and the centrality of technical expertise in opposition to political allegiance. 
the quick deterioration of the East's relationship with the organization seems to fit neatly into a narrative of the escalating Cold War and increase of Soviet Union's hold on Eastern Europe. However, when inspected in detail, the reasons for the exit of these countries was more complex and had to do as much with expectations of what international health agencies should do as with foreign policy. The grievances towards the WHO had been many and from an Eastern European perspective were mostly justified. The overpowering American influence undoubtedly played a large role in this. Certain issues, such as Americans barring access to vital drugs, such as penicillin in Poland and Czechoslovakia, became especially sore points for Eastern European politicians and physicians. Attributing Eastern European countries' decision to leave solely on, uh, to Cold War political alignments would be a mistake, however. We cannot readily assume a master plan from the Soviet side which, uh, with which Eastern European states quickly fell in line with. Moreover, while the overwhelming influence of the United States and the WHO and pressure from the Soviet Union no doubt played an important part, countries like Hungary had other substantial reasons for discontentment. The Socialist Bloc did not immediately follow the Soviet Union in stepping out of the WHO. The minutes of the Second World Health Assembly in 1949 give a glimpse of the short time when Eastern European countries took part in the WHO's work without the presence of the Soviet Union. In their speeches, Eastern European delegates acknowledged the merits of the WHO and overall significance of the organization. However, they had several problems. Eastern European delegates criticized the WHO for its one-size-fits-all approach. Apart from issues with access to penicillin, the Czechoslovak delegate called on the WHA um, to rethink the universality of, the certain, of certain public health issues and instead consider health priorities on a national level. As he mentioned, they were receiving du duplicate technical assistance from the WHO and the International Children's Emergency Fund of the UN for maternal and child health, while other pressing public health issues remain unaddressed. The Hungarian health minister, Istvan Simonovich, pointed to the fact that while Hung Hungary considers fellowships to be crucial as a form of pursuing international public health, many of its fellows are regularly denied entry visas to WHO member states and are therefore unable to attend conferences they are invited to. So this is the, 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 the other side of it. Simonovich also considered um, visiting lecturers to be less useful for Hungarian public health. As he said, because in many cases, the lecturer has no knowledge of our special local problems, so we get more out of an article than you know, somebody coming here. Sure. Finally, the question of access to pharmaceuticals came up. I quote, as far as cooperation is concerned, we have to complain about another thing. Scientific research work is hindered also by the fact that the preparation of essential medicines, such as streptomycin, penicillin, and so on, is still a secret. We cannot even get isotopes, end of quote. The importance of material needs came up in the Polish and Bulgarian delegates' contribution as well, the latter demanding the establishment of a center for sanitary and medical supplies. The criticism of several of the Eastern European delegates point to different expectations of the tasks and responsibilities of international health organizations. In Jessica's work on UNRWA, um, she argues that there was a fundamental difference in the way Poland, uh, countries like Poland perceived of international organizations' role in providing relief as an obligation and Polish people's right to assistance in the way that in which Anglo-American administrations resisted the language of entitlement to relief. This difference in approaching assistance and relief carried through to expectations from the WHO. In the late 1940s, the countries in question were still in a horrid state, their hospitals bombed, medical equipment seized or destroyed, with extreme housing problems and crumbling <coughs> infrastructure. 
At the first World Health Assembly, the Czechoslovak delegation proposed the establishment of a special administrative office for Europe. And I quote, with the purpose of eliminating the consequences of the war on the health of the populations in devastated countries. The World Health Organiz uh, Assembly agreed and directed the executive board to establish a temporary office as soon as possible. However, the proposal got caught up in the unfolding Cold War and, the, as, and as the Polish and Bulgarian delegates pointed out a year later, the office never became a reality. In countries with extreme shortages of medication, physicians and buildings um, fit to house patients, and with no access to the Marshall Plan or other forms of aid, the policy of the WHO to give technical assistance instead of material aid seemed pointless, offensive even. The Second World Health Assembly was the last one that Eastern European countries attended for almost a decade. Romania, Albania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary left the organization in 1950, along with China. Perhaps the withdrawal was not a clear choice. Instead of, so they, they also you know, um, talked about warning that in, in, uh, already in 1948 that, and that we're going to leave if you know, things don't change. But um, also they, they used um, the World Health uh, Assembly to plead for in, the inclusion of socialist approaches to public health. So you can see that there was this way that, that if you include all this, if, you, if, you, if, if we change what the World Health Organization should do, that could you know, remedy the situation. We could still you know, do this together. The withdrawal, well, this didn't happen, and the withdrawal of such a substantial number of countries from the WHO again placed the question of membership into focus and pointed to broader questions of supranationality and state sovereignty. The WHO navigated its practice among two legal schools of thought, one of which considers such an international organization to be supranational, making a unilateral withdrawal impossible once a member voluntarily joined, another considering membership in the international organization to be dependent on its alignment with foreign policy. The United States favored the latter interpretation in Congress upholding the right to withdraw within a year of uh, joining the WHO. The organization itself adopted a position of compromise between the two schools, including the concept of inactive membership. This latter solution also helped save the international organization some embarrassment when the Soviet bloc exited, they would still be members, just not really. Being out of the World Health Organization did not mean that socialist blocs ceased to participate in international public health. On the contrary, the time spent apart from the international organization strengthened ties among the members of the socialist bloc and laid the foundation for socialist internationalism in public health. Collaboration among Eastern European countries was based on bilateral agreements. Individually negotiated and signed throughout the 1950s, these agreements of cooperation were wider in scope than any official legal relationship would be with countries outside the bloc. The goals were extensive. The parties would share their expertise in disease prevention and treatment, epidemic disease control, experiences with, uh, with new pharmaceuticals. They would exchange statistical methods and planning strategies, provide medical treatment for patients in case it was unavailable in the home country, and would launch exchange programs for researchers and health professionals. The financial burden of the latter two points would be based on, the, on a reciprocal basis and would be borne by hosting uh, states. The agreements were not mere formalities. The Hungarian Health Ministry kept a record of the agreement's practical execution, list of patients who traveled to friendly countries for treatment, research plans, conference reports, journal copies sent to collaborating institutes and health ministries. Hungarian researchers regularly took part in study trips and training within the bloc. The reports of the ministry kept meticulous records of. 
from the rep reports, it seems that the languages of these international collaborations were many. And here to come back to what you know, what what the the language it was that they were using um, that came up in Sarah's presentation. With former territories of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, official correspondence was most often German. In the course of the same visit, exchange could be conducted in Russian, German, French, and English. The geographic concentration and extent of scientific collaboration mapped onto continuous pre-World War II relationships and language use. The collaboration was not always flawless, nor were all participants overly enthusiastic. Some medical and public health professionals gave into socialist internationalism rather reluctantly. A report by a physician exploring the structure of healthcare in Czechoslovakia in 1960 remarked that while some colleagues were welcoming and excited with the visit, the majority of Czechoslovak researchers were indifferent, cold, and not at all interested in the Hungarian state of affairs. While some of these collaborations might have been superficial, they involved numerous institutions from all um, Eastern European countries. Hungary's scientific ties were the strongest with Czechoslovakia and East Germany, but researchers and public health officials were also in regular contact with their counterparts in the Soviet Union, Romania, Poland, and Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and even the People's Republic of China. Several of these collaborations involved substantial assistance, not only in expertise, but also in terms of materials. For instance, in polio research, the Soviet Union provided virus strains for live vaccine research, filters, and for the Hungarian vaccine trial, they sent 200,000 doses of Sabin vaccine, all free of charge. Not only did the practice of international public health in Eastern Europe continue with the budding socialist internationalism within the bloc, but countries like Hungary continued to participate through interaction and collaboration with the West. Being out of the WHO, divided by an iron curtain, did not mean that the region was isolated in terms of international health. If we shift our focus from viewing internationalism in public health from the perspective of international organizations and governments and turn to the agents of internationalism themselves, we find that the sites of international collaboration in public health were as varied as the people acting as internationalists. Families and virologists, hospital directors and religious scholars were actively involved in shaping international collaboration in research, treatment, and access, access to technology. Global epidemic crises, such as polio outbreaks, could facilitate international collaboration and at the same time make existing underlying international practices visible. Medical missions started crossing both ways already in 1956, immediately after the Khrushchev thaw. The sudden boom was not limited to the superpowers, however. With plans for domestic salt vaccine production, Hungarian virologists were also in the front line of taking advantage of foreign policy opening and utilizing it to establish scientific relations with the West. Curtis von Magnus, Danish virologist and central figure in European polio re uh, control, reported in a personal letter to Dorothy Horstman, her American counterpart at Yale University, the prospective encounters with Eastern European researchers in, already in 1956. I quote, we are expecting two Hungarian visitors, Dr. Farkas and Dr. Koch. They uh, plan to stay here from mid-September for five weeks to watch how we make polio vaccine. Rumors say that some Russians may be coming also. <laughs> so we certainly do communicate with people behind the, uh, the curtain these days, in the quote. Not all of these West interactions and collaborations were formalized through official government sanctioned trips. As it was the case with interactions within the social, uh, socialist bloc, Eastern European scientists built their Western collaboration on existing pre-war ties. Medical professionals could do so with relative ease since their services were indispensable in uh, war-ravaged societies of Eastern Europe. Albert Sabin's um, correspondence with Eastern European virologists 
give us a glimpse uh, at the extensive network from which emerged um, a wide range of different forms of collaboration, from commenting on draft articles and facilitating visiting fellowships to collaborative research and specimen exchange. I don't know when this guy worked because, because he was always corresponding with everyone all over the world. Um, these individual collaborations had significant effects on international public health. They became foundations for international health policies of the WHO, as the scientific evidence produced through these interactions became important building blocks in decision-making on a global scale. In the case of the epidemic management of polio, for instance, Czechoslovak, Hungarian, and Polish trials, scientific studies and practices from the 1950s became important reference points in shaping disease elimination by the early 1960s, as the WHO strived to establish standards and recommendations for polio vaccine use. These scientific results were as much as the product of collaboration among Eastern European countries as interactions between East and West, bringing socialist internationalism in direct con contact with liberal one. It was not just scientists, however, who acted as internationalists in the crucial years outside of the WHO. Parents uh, sought out treatment options in the West for their children with or without the help of international organizations like the Red Cross. So you have people actually directly contacting Western hospitals or, or um, organizations. You have also the Red Cross um, acting as a go-between throughout the 50s to get um, people to, to fly to U the UK, for instance, for eye treatments and so on. Relatives of physicians raised funds, raised funds in the United States to buy medicine and surgical supplies. Amateur radio users coordinated the arrival of a life-saving equipment in the midst of the 1956 revolution. And bishops organized vaccine shipments and utilizing their own Catholic international network. This is also how um, these um, networks link. The participation of non-professionals demonstrates the many ways in which international networks could be utilized without the initiative or even the participation of international organizations or governments. Eastern Europe's role in international public health and the rise of socialist internationalism within the years spent outside of the WHO reinforced the importance of regional perspectives in historical research. Scholars such as Sanjay Bhattacharya and Sandrine Kott, who have argued for shifting focus from Geneva to local networks and regional centers when examining international organizations, and historians such as Marcos Cueto, who have demonstrated the importance of regional policies in um, shaping global health programs. Building on this historiography, this paper has shown that geographically and conceptually decentering narratives of internationalism and global public health, especially ones tied to the Cold War, is crucial for a nuanced understanding of this formative era. It also brings alternative internationalism's new faces, practices, and relationships that become visible, which in the end can give us, um, help us piece together a very messy and often confusing <laughs> picture of international and global health in the 20th century. So in this case, you have all these outsiders who are, in a way, insiders, maybe strangers in a strange land. Um, mm. Thank you. Anna Antic. Uh, Anna is uh, also a lecturer at the uh, University <laughs> of Exeter, a lecturer in international history, and is, um, uh, is also a member of the Reluctant Internationalist uh, team here at Beckbeck, and her new book, Therapeutic Fascism, Experiencing the Violence of the Nazi New Order, is going to be released by Oxford University Press in a matter of days, and will be available uh, as an open access publication in a few months as well. Thank you. Um, so, um, thank you. Um, 
I'm calling this Imagining African Eastern Europe. It's very much a working title. And um, so this is, as, as in Dora's case, this is a very, very new project. I'm feeling a very shaky ground um, here. But, but that's why I have a presentation <laughs> to, to make up for the shortcomings of my talk. Um, um, so this is going to be a, a talk about links between Eastern Europe, East Socialist Eastern Europe, and um, and the sort of the decolonizing world. Um, and I'm with my new project. I'm looking at this alternative socialist internationalism um, through the prism of psychiatry and, and, and mental health. And in this paper, I'm zooming in on this one case study, one particular psychiatrist. So it happened. Uh, or a group of psychiatric researchers, and as it happened, the, the, the most high profile and the largest psychiatric, psychiatric technical aid mission from Eastern Europe to Africa happened to be uh, happened to come from Yugoslavia and go to Guinea. And so, uh, in in the paper, I'm actually zooming in on on this particular researcher um, and um, and his involvement in, in in the third world. But so this comes uh, in the context, obviously, of socialist internationalism. Um, so in the map, we're actually kind of aiming for Moscow. Um, but but um, so in, in, I think in, in the context of socialist internationalism and Soviet in, sort of Soviet-led internationalism, um, I think it's, it's important in, in, in this project in particular to, to focus on that the, the very important, very significant role that um, this rhetoric of anti-colonialism played in this sort of Soviet self-representation in the international uh, context and that sort of fierce critique of global racism. And in the, um, in the 1960s and 1970s, which is sort of my timeline at the moment, um, uh, both the Soviet Union and various East European um, uh, states are very active participants in various kind of international UN um, um, hosted discussions about race and racism and anti-colonialism. So that, in, in this sense, in, in, in this context, and I see this socialist internationalism as a, a sort of um, an alternative to the West European, the sort of this dying, agonizingly dying West European colonial project in, in Africa and, um, and Asia. It's an attempt to link peripheries, sort of former peripheries, former outsiders, um, uh, and to kind of try to export these alternative models of development and modernity, kind of sort of eschewing the West or, or kind of linking, learning, exchanging knowledge through the peripheries and, and kind of um, um, avoiding the, the, the core. But that is a bit problematic, as we'll see in a moment. And so my case study is Yugoslavia for, um, for a number of, I think, of obvious reasons, because, it, <laughs> I mean, just because of this particular role um, or a, a specific geopolitical position that it holds in a sort of after 1948, um, it's, a, it's a particularly um, kind of, it, it's, I think, uniquely well positioned to maintain links, political, cultural, medical, scientific links with both East and West as it sort of um, becomes um, um, kind of steps outside the, 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 the sort of control of the Soviet bloc, but remains a communist socialist country, and so sort of develops these um, these links with uh, with Western Europe in a particular psychiatric and medical networks sort of flourish between Yugoslavia and France and and Britain and and even the uh, the US and these particular psychoanalytic and psychiatric connections um, are particularly important. Um, and as I said, sort of Yugoslav psychiatrists are very interested in French and British schools of psychoanalysis, but they also become interested in, just because I think they interact so much with, with various French psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, they become very interested in this idea of transcultural psychiatry and ethnopsychiatry, which is, um, which is very much, whose homeland is very much France and then sort of spreads to, to uh, kind of 
Montreal to Canada and, and, and the former French colonies, but it's very much a kind of a network driven by uh, white French uh, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, uh, anthropologists, ethnologists, uh, um, ethnographers. Um, and so I think in order to look at this sort of socialist, socialist globalization and socialist internationalism, I think it is particularly interesting and perhaps instructive to look at Yugoslavia because it, it's sort of, and after, after Stalin's death, in addition to having its sort of strong links with Western Europe, it develops, it's kind of re, reinforces its links with the, with, the, with the Soviet bloc, with the Eastern bloc. So it's not so, in fact, a complete outsider, even within the within the Eastern sphere. sphere. But but it's very well connected, and especially the psychiatric community for a number of reasons, particularly well well connected with the, with the Western networks, um, and through those Western networks uh, with the global South, and because transcultural psychiatry um, is um, um, is very much part of the colonial and post-colonial. Um, oh, oh, I think. Yeah, we're going to France now. Um, so this is, um, this is, and this is really, I think, what's interesting. And when you think about socialist internationalism, and alternative internationalism, so exchanging models of knowledge and models of modernity between the peripheries, between the outsiders, you can't really study it um, without taking into account this kind of Western. Western uh, connection or the, 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 the kind of collaboration with sort of Western networks of knowledge. Because in this particular case, the socialist Yugoslav interest in transcultural psychiatry is directly linked to that, that connection with, with Western Europe, with, the, with, so, with the, their sort of being linked with and sort of embedded in the French transcultural psychiatric and ethnopsychiatric networks. Um, and it is through these networks, actually, that these socialist psychiatrists then sort of start thinking about the global south, about Africa, so traveling to Africa, and, and thinking about uh, kind of exporting models of socialist, of, of socialist revolution and socialism to, to, to the third world. So it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated triangle that they work in, um, sort of being very much, a, very much of socialist background, uh, but then kind of westernized and studying and training in, in France, Britain, or, or New York, um, and then sort of traveling as um, socialist psychiatrists but still Western researchers, but socialists, not, not entirely a traditional Western white researcher, but a kind of um, non-aligned non -aligned socialist Marxist uh, psychiatrist trained in France, traveling to, um, to various places in, in, in Africa and Asia. Um, one thing about transcultural psychiatry, um, is because you know, people might not be familiar, um, as one, one of the researchers, uh, one of the historians said, um, it is one of the multiple sets of practices in which colonial psychiatry transformed itself after the, um, after the well, during the decolonization period in the mid 20th century. Um, and it's, it's sort of an attempt for, of you know, colonial psychiatrists and mainly French, uh, French psychiatrists um, to try to come up with more productive ways or sort of more egalitarian and humanitarian ways of, um, of engaging with uh, non-Western um, health or mental health psychiatric strategies uh, and, and concepts. Um, and it is, uh, you know, as, as many historians say, it, it, transcultural psychiatry really kind of sets up you know, just the very fact of its professionalization at this moment actually uh, signifies a kind of radical transition. <laughs> it is a period of transition, of crisis, of reconsideration of the colonial project. But for, for, for transcultural psychiatry, especially at this time, the 50s and 60s, it is, it is very, um, 
it's very uh, difficult to actually shed its colonial past. So I, I, I do think that in transcultural psychiatry and then ethno-psychiatry, which sort of starts, start, we start speaking of it it's the 70s and, and 80s, the colonial effects, the, the, sort of the, 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 the colonial afterlives um, are, very, are very alive, especially in the way they conceptualize race and culture, uh, the way in, in this sort of primitivism civilization binary that they still uphold. Um, um, well into the 60s and, 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 and 70s. And this is one of the, the quotes, one of the sort of, I thought, some of the most articulate criticism of transcultural psychiatry is that it's, it's this reification and exoticization of other cultures, of African and Asian cultures, and the sort of setting up the white researcher as the, as the um, as, um, sort of, um, kind of standard of, of normality and also as, as objective and uh, acultural. And, very much, I mean, when, when we think about Western psychiatrists going, going into Africa and Asia to do anthropological and clinical research, this obviously has um, a long kind of anthropological tradition, but also a long tradition in psychoanalysis. And psychoanal psychoanalysis in the mid-20th century very much affects the development of transcultural psychiatry, but psychoanalytic engagements with colonial territories, with non-European territories, are also very much marked by colonial discourses, by racist discourses, by assuming kind of the universal unconscious, which is very much white and male and European. Um, so um, in this context, as we come back to Yugoslavia, when you have a Marxist psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, someone who is coming from this background, uh, it's a very complicated geopolitical situation in Yugoslavia, but then educated in France, very much sort of does his, re does his training with, with Serge Le Vauvissin in Paris, um, and very much sort of becomes plugged in in, in, in these broader ethno-psychiatric networks between France and, and Senegal and, uh, and Montreal, actually. Um, how does, that, how, how does that work out in practice? This is what interests me. How is that transcultural psychiatry when it's coming from the East and not from the formerly colonizing West? How does that, um, how does that affect their, um, their engagement with, with Africa? How does that affect their engagement with, um, with these ideas of normality <coughs> and, and mental health and, and, and illness? And they very much think about primitivism and underdevelopment and modernity, and this is very much their, their language, even if they are um, Marxist psychiatrists. And, Psychoanalyst, but I was really interested in what, what actually is the twist um, and how does that work. And for them themselves, they think of themselves as very much, as I said, uniquely well positioned to come up with universally applicable, much better, uh, much better suited theories of how of that inter, sort of kind of interplay between cultural factors, cultural, sociocultural um, context and, and mental illness. And for them, this, this project, because they have links with both East and West, but that through the non-alignment the non movement, they actually feel particularly close to the, this kind of revolutionizing, decolonizing South um, and the Third World. Um, and for them, they are actually, as I said, sort of resolving the epistemological impasse of both biological psychiatry, which completely ignores the um, the, the, the influence of any kind of sociocultural factors. Um, and uh, this Freudian psychoanalysis and transcultural psychiatry as it's emerging in the decolonizing uh, West because, uh, because for Freudian psychoanalysis, um, the, the, the colonial and the, the racist and this kind of universalist languages um, is uh, particularly important. Um, and so, you know, this is the sort of the Marxist psychiatry styling itself as a kind of an outsider that is going to completely change and revolutionize the field. Um, and I'm looking at this particular uh, person and his research team, Vladimir Kovlevich, who, who traveled for, uh, in the early 60s, um, spent three years in, in French Guinea, 
in Conakry, um, doing clinical work, doing various um, um, anthropological and ethnographic <laughs> explorations, and imagining or designing for himself this sort of massive transcultural project of sort of figuring out the exact relationships, kind of universally applicable relationships between mental illness and various cultural factors, and sort of figuring out whether, uh, whether particular cultures have uh, specific forms of mental illness, whether some mental illnesses are absent from other cultures, etc. So it's a very massive, very ambitious project. Um, and then off we go to Guinea. Now, the, the, the thing with Guinea is that, I mean, it is a, a unique... Um, I'm very scared of Jessica now that I'm going to say something <laughs> stupid. But um, it, it's very unique because in 1958, um, it, is the, um, it is the only country, in, it's the only territory, the only one of the French territories in, that actually opts for full independence in 1958. It's the first one. Um, um, and it actually uh, very much uh, sort of openly espouses its, its, its project of kind of socialist revolution, its bid for socialism, aligns itself with the first Soviet version and then Chinese version of socialism, and it embarks on this very, very uh, ambitious and very disruptive campaign of modernization, urbanization, industrialization, but also kind of various aspects of socialist, socialist policies and socialist revolution become uh, implemented. And it's considered a failed democratization, and <laughs> kind of a, a failed, kind of squandered potential for, for democratic decolonization because it becomes increasingly authoritarian. But what I think attracts lots of East European researchers to, to Africa, and in particular to Guinea, is that this kind of becomes an experimental site for these revolutionary policies. This is kind of um, um, kind of a laboratory of, of various kind of revolutionary. Um, very, very disruptive, very transformative um, policies and 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 and, and uh, sort of radical measures. And um, and for for transcultural psychiatrists in particular, this is um, this is heaven. And, and and but what what is interesting is that Eastern Europe at this very time is is undergoing a very similar project of moving from primitivism and backwardness, as as they call it, to, to some kind of modernity. So there are various complicated links. And what is interesting about about Guinea is that in, in addition to the sort of traditional kind of forms of modernization, urbanization, etc., it, it does actually uh, embark on these various demystification campaigns, this this fight against what they call sort of the, the, sort of the traditional religious beliefs of various uh, populations in uh, in Guinea, as one historian called it, unmasking the state because they were destroying the masks, the traditional ritualistic masks, etc. So this is a very very um, kind of revolutionary, very disruptive area, and this is the hospital where. Um, where he works, um, where this Yugoslav um, researcher works. Um, and it's interesting, um, this is what he comes up with. Right? So this is a quote from one of his, well, actually a couple of his articles. So, so he finds totemistic beliefs, appropriate rituals, all the way to exorcism, extreme patriarchy, open aggression, blood vengeance, buying of women, market submissiveness of women, extremely archaic social structures, exceptional forms of socio-psychological backwardness. And, you see, he works very much, or they work very much within the concept of primitivism versus civilization, and civilization very clearly resides in France um, and, and, and white Europe, and this is very archaic, very primitive, very backward society. Now, these quotes, you might think, because I led you to think, uh, these quotes, refer to, you might think they refer to Guinea, but they don't. They actually uh, are uh, from his 
kind of late 50s research in Macedonia. So he has done research in the sort of south of, of Yugoslavia, this is the, perhaps the, one of the most underdeveloped regions in, in Yugoslavia and the Balkans, um, where he tried to compare kind of patterns of mental illness in Macedonia with patterns of mental illness in Paris, and then he finds Paris much more neurotic, but also much more civilized. Um, and, this is, and then he uses exactly the same language to talk about Guinea. Uh, and, and that you know that that um, kind of um, fight for um, not not fight but this sort of um, oh let me find so most Guinea's life is still full of magical rituals with an almost universal application of magic <laughs> for the purpose of attack and defense. One believes that the world constitutes a certain vitalistic unity inhabited by a variety of supernatural and natural creatures. They're also very uh, patriarchal, very, very, um, uh, you know, very much about magic, very much about this sort of, you know, extreme submissiveness of women, very, very much about sort of primitive mentalities, etc. But what is interesting here, and this is, this is the point, um, this quest for the global actually brings them, and it, it, they go on a quest for, for the, the quest for the global for a number of reasons, but it actually brings them back to the local. Um, very much brings them back to talking about Eastern Europe and about, about its experiences of socialist revolution, experiences of modernity and modernization, and its own experiences of primitivism, what they call primitivism, right? Um, and so um, when they talk about Guinea, when they talk about Africa, they use exactly the same language as they use when they talk about the sort of the primitive, more backward um, areas of, 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 of Eastern Europe, and sort of the parallels abound. Parallels are so comparable, and it's very unclear where Yugoslavia stands on this on this kind of civilizational scale. It could, uh, you know, it's sometimes because you know, he sometimes uh, or openly, it's sort of it's different from France, but it comes from the same kind of social and cultural family, but at the same time, it is so incredibly comparable to, to, to Guinea that the language, as, as you can see, the language becomes almost um, interchangeable. And, and so this is, this is really interesting. And so, it's, so we go off, sort of cross half of the world, and, and very much still remain concerned with, with your own local concerns, political, and, uh, political concerns and dilemmas and, and themes. Um, and I think this is really interesting, what, what this quest for the global, but that kind of transnational connection really does. It makes Marxist researchers or communist psychiatrists very much reflect um, on, on the, this kind of the clash, the internal contradiction in, Marxist, in, in Marxism in, in general, and especially in Marxist psychiatry, this clash between Marxism's own civilizing mission, right? The very, this kind of colonial primitivism as a civilization binary uh, that Marxist societies uh, in Eastern Europe functioned within, right? Um, this clash between their own kind of colonialism uh, towards their own subaltern populations, right? Within, within Eastern European societies and their kind of emancipatory, progressive, anti-colonial mission anti-colonial rhetoric. This is what very much comes, comes to had in, in his own writing and um, in his own um, uh, work. But he does, and that is the final point, I promise, um, he does that kind of shifting geographical position, cultural position of Yugoslavia. It's, but, but it's, it, does it belong um, more clearly to the African psychiatric cultural zone? Does it be, become, is, is it part of, of Europe? It's not really part of the West and does not want to be the part of the West, but civilizationally it has. Um, it has similar mental health, mental illness patterns as France, etc. Um, that actually makes him, he, he does, th I mean, this group, this Yugoslav group does actually, as I said, remain within the colonial discourse and is very much part of this kind of Western transcultural psychiatric networks, but it does actually make them more sensitive 
to kind of developmental potentials of Africa and Guinea. It makes, it, it makes them revise this very static concept of the African mind uh, and the savage self, right? That even transcultural psychiatry and mid-century, mid-20th century psychoanalysis hold this idea that African societies are kind of, kind of are, uh, replicating the childhood stage of human civilization. It's very racist, cultural, evolutionary scale, right? So the African peoples are, are it's sort of like the children of the, of, of the, 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 the it's kind of embodying the childhood of humanity, right? And they're kind of timeless, uh, timeless people run by their own um, unconscious, right? And he does have a, a much more, um, much more dynamic, um, um, concept of the of the kind of uh, of the African mind. He says, a primitive personality who is young and capable enough can successfully integrate in a technically and culturally developed environment, even though that integration integration might be accompanied by temporary mental disorders. But they can be grown out of, and that's actually kind of reflects the Yugoslav experiences with sort of primitive soldiers and partisan hysteria in in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Um, but he also very much engages with this kind of Western transcultural psychiatrists who do believe that um, you know African African societies have lower um, a lower frequency of mental health. Mental, mental illness, lower frequency of, of mental disorders, that's a sign of the lack of civilization. So you should be proud of your high, high, high frequency of mental illness because that means it's, it's still. But, you know, while, say, British and French transcultural psychiatrists would say that this is because Africans were incapable of examining their feelings. They don't have distinct personalities. They have a collective mind rather than an individual mind. For, for Jacobovich, this is very much a factor of very, kind of a, um, a result of very contingent um, kind of socio and social, social, political, and cultural circumstances. It's not about the complexity of the mind because if if these Marxist researchers actually kind of damn the development potentials of Guineans and Africans, that actually bodes not very well for for the kind of East European or Yugoslav socialist transformation. I'll leave the revolutionary personality because there is no time. Um, and so, just a sort of final comment. Um, what do we, so sorry, um, I called it epistemologies of in-betweenness, but I, I just want to just for a second reflect on that link between peripheries and what kind of, what original contributions can that kind of focus uh, bring uh, to, to our study of history of science or history of socialism, socialist uh, internationalism. And these two are both outsiders, Yugoslavia and Guinea. I find it really interesting. They're both outsiders, quite proudly outsiders. Um, um, through, in the Yugoslav case, through non-alignment, and in the Guinean case, through this very anti-French orientation, as they call it, anti-Eurocentrism. But they're both, um, they're, 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 for both of them, the connections to the West, their entanglement with the West is, is sort of quite strong. They're, and their they're, they're relationship to the West, to, to the core, right, um, uh, is, is quite ambivalent. And their entanglement in both Yugoslavian and, and, and Guinean case are, are, are um, are quite quite important, quite quite strong, and so uh, this is an open question about the, this again, sort of to redefine the term, to think about the meanings of the term of outside and insider, and to think what it means for inscribing Eastern Europe and Marx and psychiatry into the history of global knowledge production. Thank you. Sorry. About that. <laughs> Thank you. 
Pacific. Um, and there, um, Britain and France have quite a lot of fights in private and then very frequently support each other in public in terms of essentially defending their, their colonial policy. Um, and I'm wondering whether a similar thing is happening there or whether, given that they're less outnumbered by independent nations, there's more divergence in, in um, that's a really interesting question. So what the French and the British end up doing with the Belgians and um, later the Portuguese is they actually create an organization called the um, Commission for Technical Cooperation in Africa South of the Sahara. Um, and basically this is a sort of um, uh, te technical organization that mirrors a lot of the things that the different UN agencies are doing. And they're like, if we do this ourselves, they won't have to send international personnel to Africa. Um, they're fighting a little bit, but what's really interesting is, um, you know, they really make an effort to present a united front at the UN and to say, look, we've created this separate technical organization. Um, we're already doing all the things that you want to do. Just give us money because we can't actually pay for it. Um, what's really interesting is after 1960, um, the relationship immediately falls apart. And the French actually accuse the British of, and they actually use this word, they accuse the British in conjunction with like the, the former British colonies, especially in Nigeria, of trying to colonize the WHO, <laughs> Africa office. They're like, look, like the British and the Nigerians are trying to colonize the WHO Africa office. And the thing, like the big sticking point for them is that um, even though the office is in Brazzaville, all the publications are coming out in English. And at some point there's a memo where somebody, um, th there's a French doctor who's um, corresponding with these different African leaders trying to convince African leaders in Francophone Africa that this is a really serious problem. And the thing that they point to is they say, you know, if you look at all these reports, they're coming out in English and then also something that, that in no way resembles proper French. Um, and so they're like, you know, we can't even access the publications. And so, um, you know, I think up, up to the point of decolonization, there is some squabbling, but they do try to, try to present a united front. And then as soon as decolon like official decolonization happens, I think it sort of rapidly unwinds, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I have a common question, I don't know how to put it, but uh, both your paper, Anna, and your paper, Dora, made, made me think about something, and especially the point that you made uh, on, on the life beyond WHO for so many uh, socialist states. Uh, and I'm wondering whether we as historians are making some kind of wrong assumptions on the role of the WHO. And, and, and your hesitation between international uh, public health and global public health and your critique of global public health seems to point to the, the directions that I'm thinking of. Because I, it seems to me that this is, in the end, the WHO is um, a quite useless, small, dwarf uh, UN agency, especially when compared with many others in the late 40s, 50s and 60s, which raison d'être and legitimacy and authority, we should question much more as historians. And, and the way you're doing it uh, tells me exactly that uh, the classic way of writing the history of this institution is simply wrong. Uh, and we should be way more courageous in our writings, saying that uh, there is an entire life beyond the WHO. And if we put the WHO at the center of the stories that we want to tell, we miss the point. Um, so yes, that, that's uh, that's that's partly yes, absolutely where 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 I'm trying to where I'm coming from. Also, um, I'm very interested, in, but at the same time, you know, 
there is this, um, there, there's also a very big set of expectations of the WHO that the WHO itself sets up. So it's sort of how it's selling itself, but then people buy into it, and then when it cannot deliver, you know, there you have problems, and you know, the way that just even recently, the way that the organization has been criticized for doing too much or doing too little in global epidemics is, you know, it's it's it it, it shows exactly that people are expecting um, things from it that it it's not really it's you know its job to do, but then. But then it's very difficult also to, to, to pinpoint of what it actually does. But also that, yes, exactly, that there is so much um, apart from it. But it also brings me to um, an interesting question in you know, thinking about this historically, is what, what exactly we mean in international public health then, or global public health. Because you know, if you look at um, the, 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 one of the most recent publications by, by Randall Packard, you know, it's, it's that kind of you know, narrative mostly still, that, that, that's, that's, that's what you mean by international you know, public health or global public health. But, uh, but then what, what is the limit? Is you, know, is you and me talking to each other, are we internationalists or, you know, or do you need some kind of umbrella organization to call in international international health our families traveling back and forth our scientists working together is that so it's i have no answer for that i'm trying to figure that out like if, if we if we move away from these organizations that are i, I think you're right that are not not you know the way to go or, or you miss this whole other world that's probably more um, uh, than what happens in the organization but then where, where do you draw the line? What's, what is, then, then if we reconceptualize international public health or global public health, then what is that? I mean, if you just uh, make an extra um, caveat, for historians like me living and working in Geneva, of course, uh, it's, uh, it's even more problematic mm -hmm. because to, take, to keep the, 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 the hygienic distance with respect to this uh, uh, institution is, is quite important for the the work we do, and I've been wondering for quite some time, and this certainly applies to the WHO, but other, also other UN agencies, so I don't think that the WHO is unique in that respect. This idea, what, what you said about the expectations is quite fundamental in at least one respect. If you think about uh, issues of um, authority and legitimacy, especially when the beginnings of this institution are clumsy and they have to construct their legitimacy. The only, it seems to be that either they, are particularly, they particularly lack creativity or uh, the only way to go for them is to uh, create expectations mm -hmm. beyond reasonable limits, beyond what they can actually do. But if they fail to do so, they are doomed. Yeah. So they are facing a kind of existential dilemma. Uh, and uh, when in the 50s so many states decided to pull out or have a life beyond the institution, then the institution is kind of condemned. And uh, it politically, diplomatically, but also from a more profound point of view, which is um, moral, philosophical, I don't know how to put it. But that's also uh, stunning how this history is completely, well, you know, it's 
there's a reason for this history missing. <laughs> Nobody talks about this event that like really like a lot of countries just like, stand up and leave and like we're not part of this anymore. It's, an, it's a huge embarrassment. It doesn't you know fit into the myth of of the of the establishment of the of the of the this wonderful organization. Um, but but it is you know it, it raises so many issues that it's that at least somebody should have looked at um, it critically. Um, well, no, yes, it's hopefully happening. I've got I've made a list of the the people who want to ask questions, so we'll, we will uh, get around to everyone. Um, Joanna was next. I think. Um, thank you. I have a question actually for Anna. Um, I'm really interested in this question. I mean, we know in the terms of colonial medicine that the colonial doctors were serving the colonial product. Project. So I'm wondering about your psychiatrist, um, if he saw him, what his um, view on the industrialization and modernization of Guinea was. If he supported the idea of a modernization of, of industrial development there, or if he was in somewhat of a dissident position vis-a-vis -vis this, uh, this socialist global project, or if he was hoping to somehow overcome some of the problems of development and, and industrialization that they had observed in Yugoslavia, they somehow tweak the model and perfect it in Guinea, um, and so sort of some kind of middle ground. And if also, if there was any kind of romanticism that you saw, I mean, we know in the, in the, in the Russian um, socialism, you had the idea of the possibility of, cre of building socialism on the, on the foundation of the peasant mir on the commune and, and skipping over the individual stage um, do you see any of those sort of Slavophile romantic mm -hmm. ideas coming in, um, or is your is your guy a, uh, really too much of a Francophile to sort of engage with the Slavophile ideas? Or I'm just wondering if there is any um, sort of regret uh, for the need for industrialization mm -hmm. in and in, um, in the setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, right. Um, so I, I have I have I mean he is he himself is very much oriented away from Soviets from. Um, well, well, from Soviet psychiatry, but, but also from sort of various other Soviet cultural influences, which is quite untypical, I think, for, for, for his generation, of course, but, but he is. Um, but it's, it's interesting when you say sort of he's, he's exporting a model, and that's how he's seeing himself, he's exporting a model for, for modernity in, in Guinea uh, from, from, from Yugoslavia, but actually I think what he's trying to do is to, to, to have a kind of... Um, Traffic in the other direction, right? He's, he's sort of trying to um, understand all the perils and, and, and all the sort of disruptions and the sort of potential pathological pathological potentials of the socialist revolution in Guinea, and sort of try to reapply them. I, it, it's always kind of these East European Yugoslav concerns are very primary, very very sort of and and the front of his of his thinking uh, at the front of his thinking. and and I think that is sort of sort of strong, and this is where the revolutionary personality discussion comes comes into. Uh, kind of because the revolution personality actually means that for him it's a kind of his original contribution it means that this massively disruptive social and, and cultural revolution political revolution doesn't have to lead to pathological um, pathological mm -hmm. consequences it can actually but like you know this that's the case of Yugoslavia revolution or in the Guinean revolution decolonization you have this extremely disruptive pathogenic social and cultural context but um, since this is kind of destruction of backward societies, that those revolutionary personalities, more progressive personalities, can actually have their kind of creative potentials awakened in, in the midst of this crisis and chaos. And this. So that, that that's a very positive evaluation of the revolution and its potentials. Um, and he is quite positive about 
about modernization and industrialization. I mean, it's not something that he's, he's it's not up for it's not up for discussion. This is something that is a kind of a scientific line of development, and, and societies do need to go through that. But he he is quite. This, oh, he's quite non-dogmatic in, in the way he uses various psychiatric and psychoanalytic theories because he does actually very much criticize this, this kind of vulgar Marxist understandings of, of kind of relationship between um, between social conflict and and I don't know, mental illness, personal pathology. This is, but he's also very much picking and choosing from various um, psychological or anthropological philosophical theories. So in, in, in of the self, and so in that sense, he's quite. Kind of, you know, op more open and and non non dogmatic. But in terms of his evaluation of the revolution, he's he's very much the the officer of his state. <laughs> uh, Maria. Yes. Um, well, my question goes to Anna too. Uh, I was fascinating um, uh, uh, by your project and the idea. Um, and my question goes to this. Uh, uh, effort of delineation of a primitive mentality that Vladimir. Mm -hmm. Um, um, what's the surname? I cannot pronounce yes. it. Anyway, um, so um, when he tries to describe this delineation, uh, is it in what period of time? Um, 60, 70? Yeah, 60, 60, 60, 60, All right. Um, my question is what kind of impact uh, this uh, 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 psychiatrist had in the local community? Particularly in Guinea, not so much in in, in southern Yugoslavia, given that that uh, all that he describes are part of a cultural identity. This religion, this particular religion, this Totemism, this is a part of of cultural identity. I mean, how um, do they accept if they do accept his let's say suggestions of a socialist, um, a psychiatrist, and psychoanalysis? Um, that is a wonderful question. <laughs> that will be the next question for me. I mean, the, the, the thing is, in, in Guinea, um, the, it's, a, it's very much a kind of a state project to move against some of these aspects of cultural mentality, and that is extremely socially disruptive for, for, for various communities and various populations in, in, in Guinea, from what I understand, my very limited knowledge of Guinean history. Um, so, that he, in that sense, is very much part of the, this overall context of the modernizing Guinean state. So, he's a foreigner, but he, in some sense, his 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 agenda fits the agenda of this kind of modernizing, socializing um, Guinean state. But um, um, I haven't. I mean, I've, the research I've done is is very much based on on the kind of his French and and Indigenous materials. And and I mean that is the next. So to see how exactly the local how his patients in Guinea responded to this. Um, he he didn't. He was the only psychiatrist in the Donka Hospital, right? But how some of the other kind of non-psychiatric medical staff, local staff, responded to to his interventions and kind of that's the that's the next sort of Guinean leg of my research. But thank you very much. Uh, Thomas. Yeah, I have a question for the. Um, at just one point, you mentioned the topic of the production of penicillin, mm -hmm. and I was wondering, uh, within Eastern Europe or the Eastern Bloc, uh, what were um, were there collaboration among pharmaceutical industries? Because, <clears throat> um, you know, one of the missing actors, I think, in international global public health yeah, is industry of pharmaceutical multinationals. Uh, here, I come back to the issue of Davide. We are perhaps too much focusing on, you know, the World Health Organization. Why? And it's a smoking screen. 
because the main actor, and we can see nowadays with the discussion in Geneva and so on, are the pharmaceutical industry. And I was just wondering, because you mentioned this question of um, you know, the topic of production of penicillin, what's, because you, you mentioned a lot of actors, but not this one. So I, and I had a, a, um, a comment for Anna, or a remark. Um, yeah, it was very interesting and so on. I particularly like the, the, the relation between the local and the global, the, the fact that you know, Yugoslavia had its own subaltern regions. And that there was you know, a link between Macedonia, Macedonia and... And I think it's not uh, unique, because um, we discussed with Davide a lot about you know, the, the question of the, the emergence of development theories or ideas and so on in the US. And the, the southern states of the US were often you know, a, a place where you could uh, try something or you can develop some ideas before exporting them. And I have another example. It's missionaries in Switzerland during the 19th century. They went first to the remote regions of the Alps where there, there was a huge of, for them, cretinism and things like that, you know. And after this, same missionaries, because they had no job in Switzerland, went to Africa. And they export exactly the same, you know, logic, philosophy, imagination, and so on, that they used for the remote regions of uh, Switzerland, in, you know, in the mountains and on, and after in Africa. And it's very interesting to see the links between subaltern regions in, you know, developed or in Europe or in the US and so on and after. And I think this is a, a very interesting topic that you should really um, develop because it's not unique and it's very often hidden. And I think it's a, a mistake because it's very important. Um, yes, so the question of penicillin and Jessica and I've um, been, been talking about this and, um, and it's definitely something that, that, uh, that merits more investigation. Um, but. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, there is uh, pharmaceutical actors um, more generally. You know, at this time, the pharmaceutical companies are, are in, in Eastern Europe are nationalized. So you have this um, uh, the second half of the 20th century. This um, idea that, of course, it's a, it's it's a, it's the state that's providing the medication. And and uh, you have you know the state uh, producing uh, uh, pharmaceuticals in the in the West too as part of the of, of welfare state, uh, and that and then there is a move to, to privatization, but uh, but there the way that the interaction between the two um, is very interesting. When Sarah and I were recently in, in Poland for a for a conference, there was a there was a presentation very with a very traditional Cold War agenda of how. The Polish um, uh, state pharmaceutical companies were stealing. Um, there was espionage, and they were reverse engineering um, uh, drugs uh, from the West. And uh, and uh, one way to look at is that. The other way to look at it as well. Why should you know these being private hands is liberating the, the drugs? And this it always comes up in, in in conversations of why health systems are failing or doing better. Um, especially when, in, in my work, it comes up in vaccination of how, when it's governed by a, a capitalist market, pharmaceutical production, it fails because because money will be driving the, not the needs of the people. So, so there is this uh, uh, change. 
but it's extremely complex and and it's not you know obviously not doesn't map onto this um, divide and they they do pharmaceutical companies do play a very important um, uh, role and I think they should be um, investigated more but it's also at this time really entwined with uh, figuring out responsibilities of states themselves on both sides um, uh, uh, also in the in the west of who's doing the the research for the for the pharmaceuticals and who's doing the production. So I think it's, it's there are there are different ways in which which the the pharmaceutical production engages or or, or feeds into um, international public health. Um, and I think this is as close as I'm going to get to an answer right now, because this is this is something that that needs a lot more thinking and a lot more research, uh, especially from the Eastern European. I know that Matt Savelli in, in Canada is doing some work on 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 pharmaceutical production in Yugoslavia, but but there's not much work and uh, and there's also you know work on, on, on pharmaceutical trials that are done by Western companies in Eastern Europe um, using that so that's that's as close as, um, as as we have. But yes, I agree it's uh, it's it's very important to look at this, especially when it becomes such a such a central point in, in actually doing public health because when you have no access when you have the, no machinery when you when it's all been you know blown up um, these private public international national um, things get get very uh, the stakes become really high thank you want to comment um no, no particular thank, thank you very much i think so. I, I think um it, it, it's really interesting and in my in, in this case i thought the fact that he has a subaltern region within his own country, sort of makes him slightly less prone to colonial rhetoric. But I don't know if that's the that's the thesis that's applicable to the, these other American or Swiss cases, or something that this could be uh, tested. Um, you know, sort of this sort of closeness that he feels to Guinea actually is sort of if 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 it's uh, uh, if if it's the case more for him than for kind of French psychiatrists, then um, then it can shape his rhetoric in a more dynamic or more kind of egalitarian way. But that might not actually hold out in these other cases. But that's that, that's a good idea. Yeah, okay, we've got just under ten minutes left and a few questions. So if we can keep the questions short and the answers short as well, that'd be great. Uh, the gentleman at the back. And I'm struggling to understand the concept of epistemologies of in-betweenness. Mm -hmm. For me, epistemology is a it's a it's a set of issues that arise from the question of how we can know things. So how can you have an epistemology of betweenness, in-betweenness? I don't I don't understand. You can't know things in between. Sorry? Why, why is it incompatible with it's between? It's really about the issues arising from how we can know things, mm -hmm. the limits of our understanding. It's it's a philosophical category. It's it's not a noun. Oh. An epistemology. Epistemology is it's a field of inquiry about how we can know things about the social world. So how, especially the social world, but just knowledge. How how can we have an epistemology of in between this? Um, I don't I I mean, I understand that I think if, if it's, it's, it's a kind of form of kind of setting up limits to knowledge or finding out m models of kind of producing knowledge um, and knowing, I think the epistemology in between this means that the, 
the very position that what I was talking about, the sort of being that cultural, geographical, political position of being in between these different ideological systems, right? East, West, South, colonial, anti-colonial, that that in some fundamental way shapes the way these people understand knowledge and how and models of, of knowledge production um, and limits to knowledge, so, really, as you said. So I think that is... When are you going to use the term belief systems? Belief systems? Belief systems? Belief systems? Belief systems? But why, why is that? Well, just because it's a set of beliefs about... Sorry, I'm just being... I'm going to be eternally stunned by the fact that I did philosophy undergraduate and I learned these, these terms and concepts and I, I'm always struggling when they're applied in imaginative ways, I guess. <laughs> maybe this sounds like a, maybe a, one for an ongoing discussion, so maybe we want to push this back to lunch, if that's okay. Thank you. Sarah? Um, in response to your comments about WHO, this kind of relates to both Anna and Dora. Um, I completely agree with you in many ways um, that there is an important life outside of the WHO. But the thing that sprung to my mind as the kind of obvious counterexample is the international classification of diseases, which certainly for psychiatry, even though the Czechs, the Czechs were back to left, it's still the official um, category or categorization nosology for diseases that's used for practice and also for research. And I wonder if that maybe also might be the case for Yugoslavia or Jakob Lietic in terms of his dealings with other parts of the world. Um, so although I think it is very much true to say that we need to look outside the WHO, there's probably ways in which the WHO impacts practice and um, research in ways that we don't necessarily always look at as well. I, I think I think um, I don't I don't think that we should get rid of the WHO and, and wholesale and, and uh, it's it's a uh, it's more of um, if you if you look at it from the outside from from the from the point of view where everything else is happening and all these other relations they you can see how how um, people and different actors are using the WHO for certain things. They're completely leaving it out for other things, um, and it's 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 much more it's a much more dynamic, you know, in between this um, <laughs> than uh, than than you know if, if if you look at it from the inside, you, all you see is the WHO, but then you mm. from the outside. For instance, the the countries that are outside of the WHO, they keep sending epidemic reports because that's you know that's important. It's important. You you can't do that. you need that organization for that. They um, they use the WHO for 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 um, as as a framework to do um, uh, collaborations that they want to do anyway. But it's it's simpler for the WHO. And in return, the WHO sometimes sits on um, certain things that are already taking place, like. Um, in the case of polio vaccine um, development, the Jumako, so, so the Russian guy and the Yale um, virologist are already planning a trip. That you know, there are all these these problems that nobody's believing the Soviet uh, results because they're Soviet results and they're always lying. And what what do they know anyway? And uh, and so the, the the people from Yale are going to go and say like give the stamp that, that this is like actually happening. This is actually a valid result. And then um, uh, the WHO sort of uh, tags along with it. Well, why don't you know? It's it's a bit weird. Why don't we say that we're we're the WHO? And they write to the WHO, and the WHO says, "Yes, yes, this is this is exactly what we're you know we're here for." And and suddenly, this is a WHO project. Um, 
And, and until now, you know, everybody talks about it, and the WHO sends these virologists. And it, that, that's how the history becomes as well. You know, it's, uh, so there is, this, there is this very interesting ways in which these, these different mm -hmm. things engage with each other and, and are used for. So I think, yes, it's an excellent point. Yeah. We've got three final comments, which I'll take all together. Oh, um, so we've got um, Susan, Yitan, and Jessica. Um, and then we'll, we'll see where we are with time. So, Susan. Very focused question. Uh, one for Dora and one for Anna. Uh, Dora, can you tell me how the Hungarian presentation of the exit varied from the time they exited until now? I'm particularly interested in the post-1989 period. Mm -hmm. How did they explain it? To Anna, what's the relationship? Because that deals with the whole question of expectations. Mm -hmm. uh, Anna, uh, how does transcultural psychiatry relate to ethno? psychiatry, which is very big in France, and this has to do with universalistic claims made by those who are pushing each of those fields. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll make my question short. Because in uh, Dora's presentation, we can see these two levels of diplomatic levels and the expert and research. So my question for Jessica is that in your story, does this uh, expert network or colonial medicine, does it try, in, in especially in French colony, if, does it try to insert their influence in the WHO uh, um, uh, African office? Because I know that the first director, exactly, he was a colonial uh, officer. So I wonder if you can uh, ponder on this. Okay. Just to, uh, to, to echo what uh, Dora's answer to Sarah's question, uh, which I think is fundamentally at the heart of this workshop, we'll build on that in a, in a minute about the, the role of public health in the form of inside these international organizations and outside. Mm -hmm. But I'm really struck, I have been so struck in, in research for the last couple of years, how much easier that argument seems to be made, you can make that argument for organizations such as UNHCR. It's a very similar setup. There's an organization in charge of refugee care. At this point in time, no one argues, is able to argue that UNHCR is single-handedly in any particularly useful way handling the refugee crisis. And yet it is a central structure which people do have to refer to. And so much of it, refugee management and lack of management happens outside of UNHCR. So what is it about WHO that the people, WHO, people inside WHO and WHO's official historian keep making such a particular claim about WHO that it makes it so apparently separate and different when it really isn't? Jessica, do you want to comment first? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question about uh, sort of colonial expertise. This doesn't exactly answer your question, but um, you know, one of the things that the French say is they say, you know, the, the reason that we don't need Soviet or Estonian or American experts coming to Africa is that, you know, we've been doing public health in Africa for so many decades now. Um, you know, the thing that we really need is funding, but there's no way that anyone outside of this world could provide expertise that is in some way better than the expertise that we've already generated from our own experience of colonial rule. And not only that, but we actually have expertise now that we can offer to these other regional offices. And so like, we should be the experts that are going to um, South America or, or Asia or these other places in the you know, quote unquote tropical world. So. Um, yes, just uh, very briefly to, to Susan's um, question, and I think we can um, maybe deal with that. Uh, in, in the dis next discussion. Um, I wish there was any way in which this story was represented then or now. I wish there was any kind of literature on history of health in Hungary in the 20th century. Um, so that's the, <laughs> that's the short answer. It's not represented, in, it's, it's not talked about. 
Um, I think very few people know that it was exited and came back. Um, it's very difficult to find out, and there's a whole other story of how they come back and what happens after, which is equally you know, interesting and important, but it's very difficult for me to find out, even from the archives, like how they come back. It's, it's very important. Hungary is the last one to come back. Um, so, unfortunately, no. <laughs> Uh, Ethnosychiatry, I think um, uh, is sort of a, a child of transcultural psychiatry, sort of becomes very much, you know, sort of stop talking about transcultural psychiatry and they start talking about ethnopsychiatry sometimes in the 70s and, and the 80s. And it's very much um, like a way to deal with psychiatrically in, in, in the context of French mental health to deal with immigrant populations. And, and so, in that sense, I, I think sort of lines of continuity are, are, are very clear. But at the same and I don't think ethnopsychiatry is much of a um, um, much of, a, sort of an improvement. <laughs> you know, it's not much more self-reflective when it comes to these various evolutionary, racial, cultural assumptions. But I think ethnopsychiatry is more about this sort of extreme relativism rather than this sort of universalistic. Because transcultural psychiatry sort of moves between the universalistic, very ethnocentric in the end, and this kind of relativist. Um, condescending relativist uh, conceptions of the other. Um, but I think for ethnopsychiatry sort of taken to the, to the complete extreme and sort of, and, and it serves in the way, I mean Didier Fasson is, is actually quite an articulate critic of this and I really like that but um, he, it's a sort of way of really kind of uh, sort of fundamentally othering these immigrant populations by sort of, sort of Purportedly attempting to include them in the health system, sort of by sending them off to um, not to regular psychiatric clinics where all the white people go, but to ethno psychiatric clinics where, where all where, where where their illnesses and their disorders would be would be, I think, interpreted in the context of their kind of traditional cultures. Is that no? Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to finish next. We've run out of time. Uh, thank you very much again for our speakers. And we're going to move over straight on to the, uh, the final.